Well, hardy ho, neighbour. Hello there. Just going back to my old faithful um, opening. Hardy ho, where you just sound like a maniac. Or are we supposed to say, well, hello? Because then that way Gwen can flog yeah, some doormats. Yeah, you got yourself into a real tangle about that. What about the doormats? The doormats <laughs> just make me laugh and laugh. Because when Gwen said, wouldn't it be fun to have doormats that said, well, hello? And I think both of us just sort of went, oh, yeah, Gwen, yeah, yeah, hilarious. Hello. Next thing you know... <laughs> She's found this woman in Perth who makes doormats and she's rung her up and said, look, I'll have uh, as many as you can make. This woman, mildly shaken, says, <laughs> serious? And, of course, that is indeed what happens. Don't uh, you think it's amazing, like, some people's competence? Like, I would say I've got some very competent friends, but pound for pound, Gwen Blake is my most competent friend. Um, I would put her in charge of the vaccine rollout to tell oh, the truth. Oh, totally. I mean, you'd have none of the nonsense. You really wouldn't. Every time something is badly organised around any of that, I do think they need like a Gwen brain running it. Like one of those people that's able, my executive producer, Justin, has the same brain. It's like they can see a lot of moving parts in one go yep. and preempt where, you know, bottlenecks and things are going to happen yep. and just smooth it over. You, I reckon Madeline has that as well. Oh, yeah. Producer, yeah, Madeline she's Holcroft. like that. Yeah. Whereas I would be like, if you asked me to organise um, doormats. First of all, I'd fluff around doing stupid Google searches for about three days and then I'd have a panic attack about like how to, you know, process it all and how would I get them sent out and I'd spend a stupid amount of money paying people to do things that, you know, could have been done more efficiently and in the end I'd be, it would take me a month and at the end of it I'd be in treatment. See, I don't reckon I'd even start it because it wouldn't interest me. So I would just, so if Gwen gave me a task like, hey, Salesy, can you go and um, pick apart every song on the Abbey Road album? No worries. I'd get that done massively efficiently. If she said, can you go and organise some doormats? I'd be like, no, I don't want to. No. <laughs> I just would never do it. Um, hey, you used the words in treatment, which reminded me of a few things. I'm in this bizarre psychoanalysis rabbit hole, which was sort of sparked by the death of Janet Malcolm, the American oh. writer. Wow, uh, that just feels like the end of a giant era, the it does, end of Janet yeah. Malcolm's life. Well, Janet Malcolm, most journalists would have heard of Janet Malcolm because she wrote a book called The Journalist and the Murderer. And if you're of our era yeah. where you, journalism shifted from being a trade to a profession and you went to university, reading The Journalist and the Murderer, and I remember we had to do an assignment on it, it was sort of a core part of the degree. Um, the book is about... Uh, her analysis of a book called Fatal Vision by a writer called Joe McGuinness where he uh, got fly-on-the-wall access to a defendant in a murder case and then he wrote this book where he basically threw the guy under a bus and said, I just believe that he did it anyway. Yeah, he signed up to a kind of like an agreement to share profits on the book with the guy and he was given absolutely unqualified access to the defence and became friends with the defendant and then creepily, like over the period of the trial, started thinking, oh, my God, I actually think that he actually did it. <laughs> and then wrote the book still lying to the defendant saying, you know, of course you're innocent, dude, oh, you friend <laughs> right behind you. Turns out like about 5K behind you, like on the Dick Cavett show calling him a killer. And so, uh. and I mean, look, this is one of my favourite little knots of writing. It's so full of um, bizarre intrigue. Um, and he, I mean, the, the book itself, Fatal Vision, is worth a read. The whole case is um, just a bizarre one. Um, but then he ended up getting sued by the defendant who was convicted yep. and sued him for sort of like breach of contract, really, yeah. like sort of fraud, having agreed to write a book about him being not guilty and then sprung this surprise. Like he never told the murderer 
until he started doing publicity for the book, what the conclusion of the book was. So you can imagine um, the dude's surprise in his prison cell. But Janet Malcolm, in her kind of fiendish way, um, then decided to write a book about the whole thing. And, you know, you write about journalists who um, (laughs) have all read that book because they remember it for its absolutely scorching first line, which I paraphrase here, but it's something like... I'm Googling it. Oh, you are? Okay, well, I'll I'll keep padding while you find it. 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 I mean, her phrasing is much more devastating than mine would ever be. I was um, madly sort of typing and getting constant errors. Um, Okay, (laughs) this um, this is it. Every journalist who is not too stupid or full of himself to notice what's going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is a kind of confidence man, preying on people's vanity, ignorance or loneliness, gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse. Yeah. So she ba- the premise of the book basically is just looking at the relationships between journalists and sources and yep. the fact that it's an unequal relationship because you as the journalist are trying to make people trust you and tell you things mm-hmm. and they're giving you this information and then you're doing with it what you want and often you're positioning it in the context of what other people are saying or you're judging them as they're talking and yep. so they think you're on their side but actually you're often either neutral or you're you know you're always supposed to be neutral or in some cases like say the Joe McGuinness example you're actively working against the person. So um, anyway, so she wrote this very, very famous book. And I realised when she died, I mean, she she was very influential in American journalism and particularly that book. I realised that I'd read um, a lot of, say, articles she'd written for The New Yorker, Mm -hmm. but I hadn't read anything other than The Journalist and the Murderer. So I did a quick sort of search to see what else she'd written. And she'd written this book called Psychoanalysis, The Impossible Profession. Right, yeah. Um, have you read it? Um, no, I've read another book of hers called In the Freud Archives, which is great. Oh, yeah. oh she's got mm. another one in that. Oh, there's, there's a whole series. Like she's, her interest is eclectic and fascinating. Like she's got um, a real kind of spread of, of But she must but be psychoanalysis is very much, you know. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's quite a strange, I'm about three quarters of the way through it, it's a quite strange book, actually, because it seems a bit, to me, <laughs> structureless. Right. Uh, I guess maybe a bit like therapy, where she's sort of meandering around lots of different thoughts and ideas, but it centres around this one psychotherapist in particular who she goes every week for an hour and she interviews him about his profession and then she's padding it out with sort of bits of the history of psychoanalysis and Mm. Freud and all of the rest Mm. of it. it. It sounds almost like cult like. She's making it sound like a cult. Right. Um, anyway, it's quite odd. But then that led me into rewatching a show that I absolutely adored. Oh, can I just ago. can I just quickly yes, just yes. um shove one thing in before yes. we move on from Janet? Um one is that the New Yorker when she died ran this fantastic collection of Janet Malcolm remembered by writers like oh, yeah. from, by her colleagues at the New Yorker and like there are some I urge you to read it because I think you will find it absolutely fascinating. And in in one sense this collection answers a little bit of your observation about that book because one of her colleagues remembers she just simply, if she got to a bit of a book that she was read, writing, you know, an area that didn't interest her, she simply excluded it. Like she just, oh. you know, she just didn't tangle with bits of this sort of the landscape in which she was not interested. Oh. And so um, that might be the key. I mean, a, a, a hint as to the sort of odd structure of, of that book. Um, there was a, also another bit that from another writer that I'm sure you would love um, where the writer invited her to attend something 
and she's just responded with the most incredibly <laughs> brilliantly blunt, you know, it's basically, um, thank you so much um, for the invitation, but I don't want to. Thank you. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, just, Absolutely brilliant. I mean, superb. <laughs> um, I will also just add by way of um, personal self-aggrandizement and um, interest that I met Joe McGuinness, the guy who yes. wrote Fatal Vision, um, when I went to America in 2011. He was at that time um, writing a an unauthorised biography of Sarah Palin who had moved in or he, he moved in next to her house, oh. like rented the house next to her. Oh. I know. So, like, his his methods are, <laughs> So did, did she – was it an authorised biography or no. he just did that? He oh just moved – yeah, right? Wow. And she was obviously highly pissed off about this. Um, I will also mention that his first book, called The Selling of the President, oh, which yeah, is an account of the um, Nixon campaign, you know, the first campaign in which a presidential candidate used t- an advertising company. And he basically went in and knocked on the door as a 22-year-old journo to, at the advertising firm. And they went, oh, who? yeah, fine, you're a nobody, sit in. And then eventually just sat in on all of these sort of high-level yeah. meetings and then pooped out this book, which was a massive surprise to the yeah. Nixon campaign. That's one of the most famous political, insider political campaign it's books It's a spectacular book and it really, like, it, it, it stands the test of time. Anyway, he met Janet Malcolm just once because when she started writing The Journalist and the Murderer, he wasn't, ent- like, he knew that she was suspicious about his role and disapproving. But he said that he invited her around, like, agreed to an interview, but then um, stopped it after several <laughs> minutes because he... <laughs> after she was like, what do you make of my idea that right. any journalist not too full of himself <laughs> or stupid to know is... And I always remember what he said to me um, about that meeting. He said, she was like a scorpion in a bottle. Oh. <laughs> Wow. But I thought, like, you know, she's right about journalism in the sense that, like, if you're interviewing someone who's an extremist, right, and they they open with, you know, you want them to tell you, you know, stuff, and they start off with, well, as you know, you know, the Holocaust was a fraud. I mean, there are circumstances where you've got to just button your lip and of kind course. of allow them to, you know, think that you find that unremarkable or whatever just so that you can keep the conversation going. Yeah. Um, whereas, obviously... McGuinness, who immediately asked Janet Malcolm to leave his house, you know, that wasn't her technique at all. She's just like, you know, well, I I think you're a fraud, so let's talk. (laughs) (laughs) I think you and I have talked about this before, Mm. Um, just the different ways that journalists in interviews get people to open up and tell them stuff. Mm, And, like, mm. um, so going in there in that kind of a manner, I mean, look, I don't know, I, I, I personally would think, well, that's not going to get somebody to open up. But it might if the person was particularly argumentative and liked a bit of conflict. Yep. So if you were interviewing somebody of that ilk, you know, maybe they would. And Joe McGuinness, I would suggest from his history, possibly is that kind of a personality, although he did throw her out. So, But then there's also um, there's the people who I've read about, Joan Didion, the writer, that she basically says nothing. And so it becomes extremely awkward because right. of her amount of silence. And yeah. so the person is just blabbing everything oh, because God. Joan Didion's making them the power silence power silence um there's people who uh i know i won't name whose manner (laughs) but let's call them (laughs) whose manner is like the police where they're quite intimidating in their manner and make you feel like you have to tell them um, things and then i would say that what i rely heavily on is um my likability and and apparent trustworthiness which i would say (laughs) which i would say i am trustworthy but nonetheless I often will say to people, 
I know I seem likeable and trustworthy, but you have to understand that I'm a journalist and I'm here for your story. Oh, so you actually put a little kind I of... I actually yeah. flag it because then I think that makes me seem more likeable and trustworthy. Oh, my God, it. you're appalling. <laughs> that's just... That's so reprehensible. It's very awful. God, I thought but I was I'm a not... jerk for taking them a cake. But Shit. I'm trying... <laughs> But I'm try- I do try to be honest with people and say to them, this is not an equal transaction, right? Because I'm here because I want something from you and, and our interests might align because you might want to share this information for whatever reasons yeah. you have. Yeah. I want the information maybe for different reasons because it's a good story yeah. or because mm-hmm. it, it is a um, scoop for my program. Yeah. Um, and so you have to think about your interests and, you know. And because I'll- my interests aren't to protect you. And I'll often yeah. throw other, if I'm trying to get them ahead of other people, I'll throw without naming them other journos under the bus by going by going and look not everyone is going to be as transparent with you about that and I am being transparent with you that I'm here to get a story Um, and so you know if people are telling you they're doing it to help you just don't believe them because they're not they're doing it for a story so I try hard to be very transparent about the process Um, but you know and I think that that is honest but I acknowledge as well that it is on some level manipulative sure but it's pretty it's pretty great. I mean, I'd totally fall It's for also, it. it's risky as well because, you know. Have you ever had anyone just say, oh, my God, I'm looking for somebody to feather bed me. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be lied to in a comforting way. I think. And I mean, shocked it, later. <laughs> it's an interesting. <laughs> it's interesting that it depends on the person because. If it's somebody who's got experience with the media or they have, you know, yeah. high level advisors or whatever, they tend to be making a very calculated decision often sure. then, yeah. right? So they I don't, they don't even need me to tell them yeah. that it's a transactional process yeah. and they will decide, oh, I'm going with, you know, a current affair because mm. I want to speak to that audience or mm. I'm going with so-and-so because I have a personal relationship with them or yeah. whatever. Um if it's somebody who's uh, had no experience with the media and they're more sort of, you know, just have found themselves at the mm. end of a story, I think that that can be more – I think they are trying to get a sense of who can they trust. Yeah. And I'll often say to people as well, why why are you contemplating doing an interview? Like you tell me what you're hoping to get out of it mm. and I'll tell you if that is the kind of thing that makes my show work for you. I think the other thing that these days, you know, frankly is – very advantageous for me is that a lot of people already feel like they know yeah. me. Yeah. And so that is a big benefit in terms of they will at least agree to talk to me or they feel straight away like they trust me. Um, and I try really hard to not, you know, breach people's trust. That's why I try to be super honest about, well, this is what's going to happen and this is how it will play out. And if you don't want, you know, this kind of attention, then, you know, mm. going on national television may not be for you or, you know. Do you think that there is an expectation now that, you know, um, I mean, this idea that Malcolm criticises that, you know, to some extent a journalist may let things go or, you know, continue a conversation without challenging things um, in order to extract further confidences. I mean, like, I often think um, I get, you know, I still get a lot of like blowback for that series Kitchen Cabinet oh, yeah. from like a narrow quarter of people who say, oh, my God, why, you know, you sit down with somebody for a meal and you don't, you're not, you know, you, you haven't gone them about their, you know, mismanagement of this portfolio or their treatment of, you know, this person or whatever. And I kind of, it's interesting because I feel like that's a, um, like this expectation that an interview needs to like kind of, 
square off every malfeasance that a person has ever committed is like a really increasing, you know, kind of analysis. I think, you know, my view has always been that people who watch interviews aren't dumb, you know, they make observations about people depending on what they're shown, right? And like when you give someone an opportunity to talk sort of on their own terms, the stuff that they choose to talk about is actually really intriguing, I think, but I don't know. Maybe Also, no, I think that's right because also um, a show like, say, Kitchen Cabinet versus a show like 7.30, what – in an interview that I do, it's a straight with a politician we're talking about. It's mm. a straight accountability interview, and I have limited time, mm. and so I am doing what you're talking about, which That's is why you're a rude, interrupting bitch. <laughs> exactly, I'm constantly trying to hold them to account for decisions yeah. they've made. Kitchen cabinet is trying to go below that because those kind of ex- interviews exist in like lots of spaces. What you're trying to show is what motivates this person and what drives them to make the kind of decisions that they perhaps mm. make. So you're not operating at that superficial level of why did you make this decision? You're trying to expose what are their fundamental drivers and their fundamental values and who is the person they are mm. so that then when we see them in the public space and the way they behave or the decisions they make, you bring some broader context to it I think that's like also to just pull it back to the um, therapy theme like you said the stuff they choose to talk about is revealing well that's the same with obviously the process of psychotherapy I, I was, know yeah I was going to say before um, the Janet Malcolm book put me back into re-watching a show called In Treatment oh so I watched a little bit of that show once when I was staying with my brother and sister-in-law in um, Shanghai and I so I had this clear recollection of just we started watching it and then we just couldn't stop watching it yeah. it's so fascinating and for me it was the first show I'd ever seen where a um, where television could somehow depict a life of the mind yeah and that a show that is seriously the same shot for half yes. an hour could be such gripping television in the same room. I mean, it's mm. like a play because it never, it never, it's all dialogue. Yep. There's next to no action. Um, it's all dialogue and it's all in the one room. There's very few scenes in season one that leave mm. his office. Um, also, plus Gabriel Byrne. I could just, oh my I could god! Look at that man indefinitely. I think we we did talk about this show. I think really in an early episode of the podcast, but it was interesting to me to rewatch it because I loved it as well when I first watched it. For anyone who hasn't watched it, it's structured in five episodes blocks and it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. There's a Monday client, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and on Friday he goes to visit his own therapist and he downloads about his own week and his own life so and good. sometimes shares his private thoughts about the patients. Because when you're watching the other four episodes, he's just fulfilling the role of the therapist mm. and asking questions and responding to what they raise and so you never really have a sense of what he's thinking. So <laughs> it's after a it builds, idea. It, it is. And after a while it builds, you are just dying to get to that Friday episode because you want to know what's going on in his head. <laughs> <laughs> but um, re-watching it, I was thinking, oh, I wonder if I'll like this as much, you know, the second time sort of knowing what happens. And, oh, my God, it's just absolutely brilliant. Okay, Gabrielle well, Byrne's brilliant. I feel like I didn't actually finish. I, I, I possibly didn't finish watching the, seas, the, the series. So it, I, I'd recommend it. It's quite cerebral mm. because it's so dialogue heavy. And as you say, it's sort of depicting the life of the mind. And so it's quite... It's not like um, an easy, it's not like Girls 5 ever. It's it's requiring a fair bit of concentration. But um, it's just superb. And the people in that season one, the people who, it's a it's a young woman who's having transference issues who thinks that she's in love with Gabrielle Byrne. Yeah. The second one is a fighter pilot who's been on a drone mission who's dropped a drone and it's killed a heap of civilians. Also in love with Gabrielle Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> the third 
good one is a young female gymnast who, like a teenager who appears to have suicidal tendencies, who's played by an Australian actress actress called Mia Vasakova, I think her name is. Anyway, she's superb, Vasakovska. The the, the fourth day is um, a couple who's in marriage counselling um, and then Diane Weist is his therapist on the Friday. Oh, my God, Diane Weist. So good. And they have a long, long history where he had seen yeah. her for therapy years earlier and they had a kind of falling out and now he's gone back to her and it's just it's very, 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 very good. I um, have, I mean, have I'm, you had any time for watching TV at the moment? Because um, you're deep in the weeds of your show. Oh, um, yes. Oh, my gosh. News on that. Um, but... Before we depart psychoanalysis, also just there's a podcast um, by Esther Perel called oh, yeah. Where Should We Begin, which is definitely yeah. in this vein. I mean, it's um, um, it's basically the audio of a therapist talking to um, couples. It's mainly about things going wrong in couples. Yeah, just, right. It's really interesting. I yeah, haven't listened to many good. of them, but um, it's if you're into this sort of genre, it's kind of like it's a bit of free therapy too. I listened to a few, but also I found it a bit like in treatment. Uh, it it takes a fair bit of emotional and mental concentration, true, so true. it's a bit draining. And I sort of really, I slightly miss the visuals as well. I don't know why, because it's just like, uh, you know, Zoom. So anyway, Gabriel Bird's giving everybody there. a heart attack. Um, oh yes, no doubt. Um, so yes, exciting news is that uh, we've finally finished making that um, series on women politics that I've been doing for about a year. It feels like ages, yeah. It's called Misrepresented, yeah. yeah. So, because this year is the 100-year anniversary of the arrival of the first woman into an Australian parliament. That was Edith Cowan in oh. 1921. Um, and she, you know, I can't imagine what, how freaky life was for that woman. I mean, she had a freaky life anyway. She was, um, her mother died in childbirth, um, and then her father murdered her stepmother and then was executed for the crime. So she was mm. orphaned in the most insanely, you know, dreadful way in her teenage years. And then she got married, had kids, became kind of like a real stalwart of the community, activist for women's and children's rights, and then got elected to parliament as the first woman to do so in 1921. And, you know, she was... Um, entered this weird world you know there weren't toilets for her in the building she had to nick home for a wee <laughs> she was um <laughs> she was like her maiden speech which is supposed to be according to the westminster tradition listened to in silence she was heckled Ugh. you know interrupted and she just like she was just a gold lady anyway um i've been meaning for years to make a documentary series this year looking at, you know, what the experience of Parliament is like for women. So we've kind of, even despite COVID, it was like a, you know, five-dimensional Jenga game, but, like, we managed <laughs> to get around and interview, you know, like the first female Prime Minister, the first female Foreign Minister, Defence Minister, the first woman to serve in both houses, you know, the first, you know, woman to answer questions in the floor of um, House of Reps and so on and so forth. But it's, so it's this kind of, like, the series is like, it's kind of what women talk about in in politics behind closed doors, right. basically. Yeah. And what the experience is like of walking into a system that still is pretty much designed for men. Yeah. And the ways that they get around it and the things that they all agree on and then the things that they disagree on. It's really, yeah. It, it must was, be exhausting to operate 
in that world, I mean, lots of worlds, you know, the whole world is sort of designed basically for men to be in power, but certain occupations yeah. ram that home more than others and politics is right up there. The thing that I've really reflected on this year is just, and talking to all these women and seeing, it's the mental load that they have all the time because yeah. it's for them it's not a question, and like I think this is why I think sometimes men in politics find it a bit difficult to compute, is they don't have to really do the same jumping through hoops that lots of women have to, yeah. i.e. walking into a room, checking out how many dudes there are and how many women, like working out how to get their ideas listened to and taken up because they don't have the same assumption um, of, you know, being allowed to be ambitious, being allowed to, you know, have ideas. You know, there's still these sort of really interesting um, just roadblocks in the system that, kind of still invisibly operate against women. I mean, decreasingly so, I must say. Um, but I just thought it was worth, while all of these women who are still firsts are sort of still alive, yeah, you know, that's amazing, isn't to it? kind of get together a bit of an archive of what that's been like, because I think it's been super difficult. And there are some things that have got better over the years, but there are some things also that have got really weirdly harder. And I... Um, Sadly, I, we missed out on interviewing Susan Ryan by a couple of days. Like, it's just unbelievable. She died very suddenly a couple of days before we were due to interview her. Um, I do have an audio interview that I did with her. But, like, one of the things that she said that really struck me was she thought that it was harder these days for younger women in politics, particularly single young women, because, you know, when she was the only woman in the Hawke cabinet, she was also a single mother. Like she said, but at least I could go out and go out with people and have dinner without people on their smartphones, you know, papping me or yeah. rumours about who I was shagging or whatever, which I think does happen, you know, quite extensively to young single women in the parliament. So mm. that's, you know a really weird and gross thing that has become harder, I think. Yeah, I bumped into um, Natasha Stott Despoir the other day. Mm. I'm sure you've probably interviewed mm -hmm. this. Yes, case. yeah, she's um, in series. Yeah, and I was just think remembering um, back to that era when she was elected yeah. and how, I mean, there was just so much attention on her being yeah. a young woman. Just mm. the fact of her being a young woman attracted so much attention. Well, um, even when she, I mean, she was sort of dating various people and she said it was just unbelievably like the scrutiny and the speculation about who she was sleeping with was mad. She said it really changed when she got married. And then and th it's not like the scrutiny went away. It then became when's she going to have a baby? Oh, yeah. And then so she was saying there was some she was there was some reporter on some newspaper that was on the Natasha pregnancy beat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that, you know, Sarah Hanson-Young also said that um, her marital status really made a huge difference to what happened in the Senate to her. She says that because um, she arrived in Parliament with like a, a toddler, like a, even mm. smaller than a toddler, and she was married and then um, the marriage disintegrated a, like a short period into um, her Senate stint Um and the moment that she became um, separated from her partner, she said that all of this stuff started, like um, sort of rumours and speculation about who she was having an affair with or who she was sleeping with. And it just actually got to a point over a couple of years where she memorably had to initiate litigation mm. against um, David Lionhelm for, you know, carrying on about her alleged sexual activity. Um, it's weird and... I think one of the big takeouts from this year too has been, you know, the the really significant demonstration that the Sex Discrimination Act, which was 
incidentally, you know, absolutely bulldozed through that parliament by Susan Ryan, who was the only woman in the Hawke cabinet at the time. Imagine that. like, mm. um, And it was hard to get through. Um, that, that Sex Discrimination Act didn't apply to women working in the parliament and mm. still hasn't up until yeah, this amazing, year. It's it? incredible. And, in fact, look, we've done a podcast as well um, to go with the series just because um, – it's there's so much stuff, and so I'm doing a podcast with Steph Tisdall, who's this um, young comedian. She's like very smart, funny, interesting, good person, and because I, I wanted to sort of talk to a younger woman about all this stuff, because I think lots of young women will be freaked out about all the things that these women had to put up with. But one, and you, you'll you'll get to hear it in the podcast, which actually we're dumping all of the episodes and all of the podcast episodes on July the 13th. So you can binge everything um, on that day. Um, I had, I won't say who it is, you'll find out in the podcast, but there's a woman who was in the Senate when the Sex Discrimination Act was going through. And she tells us this extraordinary story of being sexually assaulted by a colleague. She didn't tell anyone um, and she only tells us because she heard Brittany Higgins telling her story, mm. um, you know, decades and decades and decades later. But she was legislating the Sex Discrimination Act at the time <laughs> wow. and did not recognise what was happening to her as sexual harassment. Like mm. it's, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, well, I'm I could looking bore you for hours I'm about this with very my off forward <laughs> to um, seeing it. Um, yeah. But uh, all right, let's, before we run out of time, um, wrap up a couple of other little things that I wanted to tell you about. So I had a bit of a nostalgic cook this week where um, I keep a recipe book with handwritten recipes in it and I've had it yeah. since about 1996. Um, I'm into like a different volume now, but this is my old one. The and it's such, a great, it's such a great little time capsule because I've often written next to recipes who the recipe was from and what yeah. year it was from. And do you <laughs> do you butcher all of the recipes? Like I do, yeah. Do you I make do. a small but insulting? Or oh, like, it's just for you. Mm, I end that to okay. you. Mm-hmm. No, but anyway, this there was would be one, delicious with bacon. <laughs> there was one, one of the very first recipes in there. Um, it's called Caribbean chicken and it re- reminded me when I first moved out of home in, I can't remember if it was 1994 or 1995, I think it was 1995, um, I lived with this girl Karen in Ashgrove in Brisbane and we had this recipe that we used to always make called caravan chicken and mm-hmm. I, we used to love it and think it was delicious and I saw it there and I thought, <laughs> you know what, I'm going to make that again just to see is it actually delicious or is it the sort of thing you think is delicious when you move out of home when right. you're 21. It was actually quite tasty. So it's basically chicken thighs sprinkled with paprika. Mm-hmm put them under the grill so they get a little bit golden and then you stick them in a saucepan and there's a sort of sauce that they then sort of stew in. It's um, lime juice, um, coconut milk. Can of cream of mushroom soup. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mango chutney, um, some chilli, some garlic. I think that's about it. Um, And then it just sort of like bubbles around in that for a while and gets sort of nice and soft. And it's really tasty. It does have that sort of... I don't know how to describe it other than like Caribbean jerk kind of flavour. Right. Um, anyway, I've just been having it with rice and it's quite tasty. But right, you're back on the But you're right back, back into Queensland 1995. Did you ever make apricot chicken? Do you remember I'm that so stuff? funny you raised that. I was about to say it's the kind of thing that makes you think of like apricot chicken. Wow. Yeah. So that was, what was that? That was like a can of apricot nectar. Yeah. This is like when can cookery was like yep. a can of this, can of that. Totally. And a packet, if I'm not mistaken, of French onion soup mix. Yep, that's can right. Can you still get that stuff? 
I'm sure you can because there'd be a whole generation of people that probably still cook like that. Would anyone ever have used that stuff to make French onion soup? It just seems to be something that you no. use to make something else entirely. I like nearly just... made French onion soup this week too. Oh my I God. Just, not I'm... out of a packet, but I do love it. My God, that is a great thing to make. It Particularly is. if you're confined to your home, yes. which, you know, many people are. Um, it's 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 super easy too, right? You just like finely slice about eight onions and yeah. then you just sweat them down yeah. in butter for like hours. Yep. Here's the thing that really shits me about French onion soup recipes. I've never met one that is accurate about how many about how long it takes oh. to get the onions to that caramelized dark Literally brown. every recipe I've ever done that needs caramelized onions. I just I don't trust Absolute it at all. Bullshit. I don't trust it. Yep. Nonsense. What is yeah. it? Is it an international chef conspiracy? I don't know, but I've never they always go just give it, you know, eight minutes and I'll be done. like Absolutely no. in no universe yeah. does that ever happen. Hard agree. I reckon it takes like an hour at least. Absolutely. And agree. you're always just nervously poking at it thinking why aren't you I constantly the way? burn them as well yeah. so it's just yeah it's uh, no it takes you've got to factor in a lot longer for that. So I wonder um, why these these liars <laughs> I think we should I mean, publish an honest French onion soup <laughs> recipe. Like I made this uh, last year. Um, there was a restaurant, I think it might be closed now, at Glebe called The Boathouse at Blackwater Bay. Oh, yeah. And their famous dish was this fish pie. Right. And that, it, the recipe had been published oh, online or something. Oh, the snapper pie with the smoked snapper tomatoes. Pie. My God, that is a delicious dish. Um, anyway, I made it. I had the recipe from somewhere and I made it at home and it involved onions. And mm. it was like hours and hours and hours to get the onions to the stage that yeah. you want them to be at before you then whacked the whole rest of it in. But by Christ, it was delicious. God, I just, I love your hate recipe with, like, your hate <laughs> relationship. Like, what was that fantastic raspberry um, trifle, oh, trifle that yeah. Yeah, that's, you've that's made a few times? Um, yeah, that's raspberry and pistachio trifle. It's the it's, world's most delicious trifle, but, like, it's oh, absolutely I beautiful. dread every time you make it because you're just on the text <laughs> bitching and moaning about how much the raspberries cost. And like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> And the pistachio paste. And then the pistachio paste. I had to buy a whole bottle of Kirsch and I've used one cup full of it, but if I don't get it, it's not going to have the right flavour. Yeah, it does. That sends me over the edge. But then every time I make it for somebody, they're like... Well, this is the most delicious thing I've ever eaten in my it life. Is, and, it is, and it the, is absurd. The praise and adoration of my friends keeps me going back to it. Wow, <laughs> you are a sick woman. So you need some treatment. So yes, yeah, so I was doing a bit of um, a bit of that, and then I was doing a bit of watching of uh, my youngest child and I. There's a couple of shows on ABC Ivy at the moment. One's called The Wonderful World of Kittens, and one's called The Wonderful World of Puppies. Oh and we've been watching The Wonderful World of Kittens, and it's just it's so it's nothing it's, bad happens to the kittens, right? No, and it's not frankly particularly well done, but it's okay. just. You just spend the whole time just going, oh, he's just so cute. Oh, he's just so cute. And then we talk about which is our favourite kitten and, you know, it's a good thing to watch with your kids. Except now you'll be unsurprised to know that that child every night gets into my bed and goes, can we just watch some wonderful world of kittens together, please, mummy? Yeah, you've opened up the door a crack. That kid's never getting out of your bed with kittens. Exactly. I, um, I did watch a fantastic YouTube assemblage of um, the fainting goat. You know that brood, <laughs> yeah. that brand of goat that um, just yes. in a, in what seems to be a just a profound evolutionary evolutionary misadventure <laughs> passes out <laughs> with stress every time it gets frightened. So of course the internet is full of bastards who've got this breed of goat. They're, it's oh. American, um, sort of jumping out from behind you know bushes at these goats and they immediately crumple to the ground. Oh. I mean, it's, it's, look, it should be prosecuted, frankly, but it's also visually it's quite amusing. Um, and the goats are unharmed, <laughs> as far as I know. Um, while we're talking about, um, quickly, while we're talking about watching things with kids, um, yes. I've been watching 
the greatest series. Um, it's on Disney Plus. It's called yeah. The Mysterious Benedict Society. Yeah. Now, um, my daughter, when she was, I think, about sort of eight or nine, read this series of books and became completely obsessed with it. Now, it's this sort of standard, you know, group of child heroes, where are their parents, who knows kind of thing. Oh, yeah, love that. Um, love and that they, are, um, they are, I think, mainly orphans, Um and they're gathered together under the supervision of this, you know, kind of um, sort of spy lord who's, you know, and they're all brilliant in a set, in a different way. They've all got brilliant individual skills. Um, Not superpowers, just skills. Oh, yeah, they're just really smart or okay. they're really, you know. Okay, handy um, or whatever. Yeah, one of them carries a bucket that's full of handy things. Great. You can always, like, just jerry-rig her way out of oh, situations awesome. and whatever. And um, they become eligible for membership of the Mysterious Benedict Society by, by means of this initial series of tests and examinations, all of which they finally, they kind of individually find their way through. Anyway, it's kooky, like the um, Mr. Benedict, who's the, you know, kind of Svengali, um, is, uh, he has narcolepsy, so he'll just sort of like fall asleep at moments of stress. Like it's, there's lots of kook in it. It's, and the series is just beautiful. It's kind of like, it's it's sort of like um, you know Harry Potter or you know any kind of kids society meets Wes Anderson because it's it's kooky and brilliantly shot and and the central spy guy is played by Tony Hale. Oh, oh! save the best for last. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> right. we started watching it and the whole family's just hooked because oh, great. it starts off at the orphanage and you know the kid goes for the exam to you know enter this mysterious academy and Oh, that go. sounds great. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. good. It's really good. I'm a little bit in love with Tony Hale. Look, who wouldn't be? Yeah. I just want him following me around, reminding him what <laughs> me of what people's names are. And Tony Hale was, of course, a part, he's been in everything, um, but he was Gary the Body Man in Veep. And, and Buster in Arrested Development. Oh, God. He's just yeah. too good. I yeah. love him. Okay, let's get out of here. All right. <laughs> 